I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Napalm spells best in the evening it's not worth believing what you heard. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of I Was There Too. I Was Scared Too. I don't know whether to call it that or not. This is the podcast where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. My name's Matt Gorley. Today, PJ Souls from the 1978 classic Halloween. There's a handful of films that I've wanted to cover on this podcast, but I wanted to do it right, so I didn't rush into anything. That's why there's never been a Star Wars original trilogy or James Bond film on here. I feel like I'm, you know, waiting for the one. Well, for Halloween, I found it. But more than that, this film holds special significance for me because it profoundly terrified me as a child. I've told this story before, and bear with me a little bit, because usually I start this podcast in a very lighthearted stupid way, but this movie, more than I'm willing to admit, probably affected my life. When I was somewhere between five or seven, I don't really remember, my babysitter turned out the lights and we had that first early pay TV subscription service called Select TV, and she put on Halloween and my older sister wanted to watch it. And I was obviously too young to watch it, of course, but It did more than just scare me because I was too afraid to watch it, but I was too afraid to go into the rest of the house that was all dark. So I saw a little bit of it, but I also sat in the doorway of the TV room and heard the entire movie, which I might argue is even a worse way to watch this movie. You're not even watching it. You're just listening to it. And in that Hitchcock sort of less is more imagination is the most terrifying thing. I proceeded to have nightmare after nightmare for the rest of my life to the point where I was just petrified to sleep 
And honestly, to this day, I still don't sleep very well because when I was younger, after I'd seen the movie and I would go to bed, I would be so afraid I couldn't sleep. And so my mom would come in and sit with me while I fell asleep. But then, of course, once I fell asleep, she'd go to bed. And I started to realize that. And so somehow I trained my psyche to wake up 20 minutes after I would fall asleep. And to this day, I still wake up 20 minutes after I go to bed. I'm like a human alarm clock. The, Halloween is my superhero origin story, but my shitty superpower is that I'm just a human alarm clock. Anyway, for years I had nightmares about Michael Myers recurring, and as an adult, when I finally saw the movie, I, I kept asking the people I was watching it with, where's this scene? Where's this scene? Where's this weird scene? And it all had been stuff that I had dreamt or thought of. Anyway, <laughs> at risk of sounding like a total psychopath, it did more for building my imagination and also for strengthening my bullshit detector because I was so afraid of everything that this this fear kind of branched out into fear of earthquakes because I lived in Whittier when the big Whittier earthquake happened and nuclear war because I was growing up in the last part of the Cold War. And when we had this big earthquake in Whittier and people were like, oh, that's earthquake weather and Nostradamus predicted this. And I kind of had this feeling of like, you, there's a, just a ton of bullshit behind your eyes. And so I just read and learned and this fear that came from this movie both built my ability to make shit up, but also my desire to disprove stupid things, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But that serious stuff out of the way, there was a second stage to this where about seven or eight years ago, I had parked my car about a block away from my house and it was at nighttime near Halloween. My neighborhood was slightly sketchy so I would sometimes walk down the middle of the street. As I mentioned, I, I was just I just live a life of fear sometimes. And all the way down by my house in the middle of the street, no joke, was just a man dressed exactly like Michael Myers. Coveralls, the mask, everything, walking towards me. And so I just had this feeling of like, it's well, it's now or never. You're either a man or you're not. What are you going to do? Turn around. Where are you going to go? You have to walk towards your house. And so I'm walking towards my house and I'm getting closer. And whoever this person is, probably just dressed for Halloween, but still staying true to the character, is walking with that stiff, slow gait straight at me. And I'm just like petrified. I'm a grown man, but it doesn't matter because even in my nightmares, I would wake with a primal fear but as soon as I was awake my consciousness could say don't be afraid but you're still left with that dread and that dread was coming up and as I get closer and closer I get more and more afraid and then an all in an instant it clicks when I got close enough to see that whoever this person was had also drawn a Hitler mustache on the Michael Myers mask <laughs> and there's something about the absurdity of two of the greatest evils in history and one in my life being melded together that made the whole thing preposterous and just sort of canceled the whole thing out. And so I was able to almost like just stroll past him in a jaunty way of, oh, some kind of catharsis or something. I don't know. I went into my house and nothing ever happened. And maybe that's the lesson. But the fact that I get to have PJ Souls on this podcast and sit in a room with her, which you'll hear, it's one of the first things I say to her was both very funny to me, but also somehow silly and meaningful, I guess. Halloween does everything right for a horror movie. It doesn't really show you more than you need to see. And it's somehow a lot of it came together by accident and random chance. The fact that many of you probably know this, but Michael Myers' mask was just a Captain Kirk William Shatner mask that they kind of stretched a little, painted white, 
messed with the eyebrows and hair. And yet, for my money, it's the scariest mask in cinema history. It says everything you need to know about this film. From something so stupid as a William Shatner mask to the fact that Michael Myers' full name in the movie is Michael Aubrey Myers, but he's listed in the credits and the script as The Shape, which was based on what they would call the evil back in the Salem witch trial days. I don't know. It's such a mixture of camp and real terror. Oh, just hearing myself talk to myself about it doesn't make me want to be alone with myself. And the fact that this movie franchise never dies. The movie franchise itself is like Michael Myers. Okay, I've gone too far. This podcast introduction is approaching Mark Marin levels. Let's get to this thing. Enjoy what is a wonderful interview with PJ Souls. She is, of course, one of the trio of the girls in Halloween. The bad, fast-paced girl that says totally a lot. She's fantastic. We talk about her experience on Halloween and beyond. Her experiences with Bill Murray. Rod Stewart, Harrison Ford, continuing chapter of Harrison Ford, if you've listened to the Greg Proops episode of this show, and a whole new segment where I enlist my friend Jay Cheel from the Film Junk Podcast, who's a great filmmaker, to help me face my fears on location in relation to the film Halloween. Let's do it. The film Halloween, the year 1978. The role Linda Vanderklok, the actor PJ Souls. All right, PJ Souls, before we even begin, and on a personal level, I want to thank you for being here because I was so profoundly terrified by the movie Halloween when I was a kid that to have you alive and well in the studio, not murdered by Michael Myers, means more to me than you can possibly imagine. So <laughs> thank you for closing that chapter of my life, first of all. <laughs> You're totally well. <laughs> totally? <laughs> totally. I had to throw it in. That's so my next right question. Off the, right off the bat. <laughs> to- the word totally is forever linked to your role in Halloween, but also part of the process of how you got the film in the first place, right? Can you speak to that? Yeah. Yes, even though John Carpenter disputes that. He said really? he had me in mind from the beginning and as long as, you know, I was going to pass that first audition and the role was mine. But I, you know, I, I went in, I read with John Carpenter, which is also very unusual. Usually you don't meet the director until after the casting agent has seen you a was, thousand was times. Was he actually reading one of the parts as well or just yes, watching Yes, he read well? the scene with me and he, at the end of it, he said, oh, you're the only actress that has read the word totally the right way. And I said, well, how else would you have said it? And he goes, that's why you get the part. And I go, I get the part? And that too is unusual that somebody would actually give you a part on the the minute that you finished a reading. So. Yeah, the very first reading. Yeah, and, and then he asked me out. to stay. Well, he asked me to stay, and probably this is why he told me he got it like that I got it because he said if you could help choose your boyfriend, that would be helpful to me. And there were three guys outside, and I read with all three of them, and then we picked. You know, uh, John Michael Graham, who was wonderful with his glasses. So, <laughs> so his he came packaged with those glasses. Those were part um, of his. I personal... don't know. Uh, he was wearing glasses. He does wear glasses, but those particular black frame square ones, I think he, he got those for the role. What yeah. was it about him that you connected with? It. You said that's got to be my Bob. I think we had a, a nice connection, and uh, I I felt like I could rule him. Which <laughs> in what know? way? Well, I mean, in in terms of uh, in the role, you know. Linda. Uh-huh. Linda was kind of a little bratty and pushy and I think, you know, go get me a beer and hey, don't rip my blouse. And all those lines were sort of indicative of that she had kind of a tough personality and, you know. Yeah, she was, she was a smoker. Pushing. She was a yeah, cheerleader. Yeah, Bob went along with it because, you know, he was going to get to go to bed with her. He so. was lucky to be there, let's yeah. be honest. Well, yeah. until he went down to get me a beer. That's true. That's 
So to that scene, there, there are so many questions I have about this. Why Michael Myers decides rather than just to come in as Michael Myers and kill you after killing Bob. He puts on a sheet. He puts on Bob's glasses. He, it's like he wants to toy with you or he wants to f- sort of make you feel safe for a second. Or then he just sits in the doorway and stares for a while. And breathes. Yeah, yeah. It's – there's the only moment really in the film where it almost gets a little comical because also you're – now you're ad-libbing at this point, yes, right? So it becomes yes. this wonderful little scene where you're ad-libbing and he's just sitting there listening to it we presume. What was yeah. the what was it like on the day there? Well, I think either you'd have to ask John Carpenter this why he decided to do that, but it was either just to give me five minutes of screen time where, hey, go play, let's see what you can do, because it was really up to me. He the only instruction was try to get Bob back into bed, because obviously I think it's Bob. Uh-huh. And just do try your hardest. And so I do everything, you know, including to see anything you like. And then you've just got this breathing guy. And it seems ridiculous to me that I got up and say, oh, this is going nowhere. And I'm going to call, you know, uh, uh, Lori. It's, it's, you know, you'd think she would have ripped the sheet off and said, come on. (laughs) (laughs) But it is funny that I guess Michael Myers did have a sense of humor and a little sense of play. And maybe that's what it was as fun as he could get, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Now, it's one thing when an actor has to shoot either a sex scene or a love scene or a death scene, but you had to do all of those in one. <laughs> what, what was that even like? Like, I mean, how do you process something like that? You're going from uh, simulated sex in bed to being murdered within probably <laughs> on the same day. Was that all shot? In yeah, one that was day? a fun day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I would say John Carpenter was more nervous about it than I was because he kept asking me, are you okay? Is, are you okay with this? You know, whatever you want to do in the scene to try to entice him back into bed. If you want to flash a little, that's fine. It's up to you, whatever, you know, you're comfortable with. And it was only him and Dean Cundy in the room. He felt so nervous. So, you know, Nick Castle was Michael playing Michael Myers in that particular scene. And, uh, you know, I was a young girl. I was having fun. Uh, (laughs) to me, it seemed appropriate and, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, okay, I did carry. I got away with having the towel on in the opening shower scene so my parents wouldn't be upset. Uh-huh. What am I going to do now? Well, I thought just a quick flash and, oh, they'll never go see a horror movie. <laughs> so, especially not one that then becomes did. a huge <laughs> yes, but, cultural phenomenon. And they did. But, <laughs> but it was so quick, even though, you know, I guess you guys think it was longer than it was, but it doesn't seem it was that long and it was just a flash. <laughs> So in the murder sequence, um, in fact, the reason you're here is because we have a mutual friend in Derek Mears. And I asked him the question of when you're shooting something like murdering people with a mask on and you're this faceless killer, is there any actual fear in the people that are being killed or is it just the tedious process of filmmaking? You're one of those people that I could ask firsthand. What? Yeah, Derek's a great guy, I have to say. We've had many conversations (laughs) about life. He's a very sweet guy. Um, I always tell people, you know, it's it's not scary at all to film something like that because it's so technical. Everything's technical. There's so many people around. Um, In fact, Nick Castle was very worried about hurting me with the phone cord. Uh, We... Typically on that movie, we did one, maybe two takes. We actually had to do three takes because he was tickling my throat with it. I was laughing. I love that Michael Myers is so conscientious (laughs) about you. This is not going to work for me. I really have to have a little bit of attention, which he did, but mostly I had to act that he was really pulling it tight and and that he was really choking me. But for the most part, 
all you're thinking about is, gosh, I hope this is working. I hope this is real. I hope that this comes across as that I'm, you know, actually portraying what I'm supposed to. It's, it's the fear of not doing a good job versus the fear of, oh my gosh, this actor is going to really kill me. (laughs) And that never enters into it. (laughs) You guys, you're saying that you may have even had three takes on something like that, but otherwise you had just one or two because there yes. was, what, a 21-day shoot? 21-day shoot, and it, uh, we were there every day just in case we had to be pulled in for something. It was an awesome shoot, and uh, that was back in the day when you didn't have your little video next to it to see what you got. What you got was in the can and processed, and then hopefully uh, when you went to dailies or Don, John and Deborah went to dailies and Dean, they you know got it. <laughs> Otherwise, they would have had to shoot it again. So that, again, uh, is a testament to John Carpenter's skill as a confident director and somebody that trusts Dean Cundy and trusts himself. And, oh, I I did see that. It was good. Let's move on. And that always amazed me because, like, wow, you know, because as an actress, you go, I could do that again. Oh, I could have more feeling in that. I could. No, no, we got it. Good. Now, is it true that your legendary death scene in Halloween is being recreated at the Halloween Horror Nights at Universal? Is that- yeah, somebody told me in there they're they're, uh, they're dying for me to go. They're dying for me to go and watch myself die. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I don't know if I would want to do that. I'm not a fan of haunted houses, I'm not but either. but I mean, it's pretty classic that to think that somebody is playing the part of Linda and is you know having that scene of getting out of the bed and going and talking to Lori and all of a sudden Michael Myers appears in the sheet with the glasses and then gets strangled. That's how the scene is, you know, the bit of the scene that they reenact. So that might be kind of cool. The the (laughs) thought of you watching another version of yourself go through that and if I were able to watch that live, I think I'd just die. I don't know... It's too much processing my childhood, and this, this is all too. Well, you much. have to turn all that those thoughts into thinking that you would laugh hysterically. I would <laughs> laugh hysterically. That's your new mantra. I will laugh, laugh, laugh. Wait, don't say it with the same echo as the Friday the Thirteenth music. They're no, all going to laugh at you. They're oh God! Oh God! You. I read somewhere too that uh, you know a lot of people look at this film, especially today, and they think. There's these prolonged takes and it seemed like a director's choice and and probably was. But also I think it may have come from lack of the time to do different angles and close-ups and that sort of thing. Well, we had the Steadicam on that. Oh, the, and the so, Panaglide, Yeah, right? it was yeah. so excited to be using that. So, And it was a good way to get outside because a lot of the other scenes were claustrophobic and inside and closets and stairways. And so I suppose from his point of view and the fact that while we're walking down the street, we're being stalked by, you know, not yeah. Devon Graham, but <laughs> the guy in the station wagon that was clearly Michael Myers. So I think it just allowed also for the innocence of we're walking home from school. That's an innocent time, you know. And was there any sense of the hit that this film would become on the set or was it just another independent film? Mm, you know what? I mean, I, I, I had only done Carrie and uh, a couple of television shows and a soap opera in New York so it wasn't in my consciousness to think oh I hope this is a hit film and obviously I knew about that but that wasn't the purpose of doing it It was just to get another role and do a good job so I get another role but um and and we didn't talk about oh I hope this is a you know we didn't have 10 percent of the back end so (laughs) it wasn't something we thought about but uh in, in terms of reading the script it seemed like a very small little project and but you know and meeting John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and Dean Cundy who I subsequently worked with on Rock and Roll High School he yeah. was the DP on that um 
you just think, oh, this is going to be so much fun. It was really about how much fun you're going to have and how good a job can you do and how real can you make your character and how believable and, you know, hope hopefully that when it comes together, it's great. And I have to say that when I read the script, it was one thing. When I saw it put together with John's music, I was floored because I had no idea of the talent, you know, that in music. terms of him being a musician and, and the, the music. And so it was, but even then it wasn't like, oh, this is going to be amazing because to me, it still didn't look like, you know, uh, I don't know, Romeo and Juliet or one of those big <laughs> A-class movies or even Carrie. I mean, Carrie was a studio picture and that had some definite, you know, um, set design appeal to it and everything. But yeah. there was something very special. And as time goes on and fans keep reiterating how wonderful it is and no matter how many Halloween movies or horror movies there are, Halloween number one is their favorite movie. And we're talking new, new generations like you. That, it is so. my favorite horror movie but also one that legitimately scares me uh, i my babysitter made me watch this when i was about five on cable oh. tv and <laughs> turned out the lights and it it seriously i mean i joke about oh it but I, I it affected me my entire life i <laughs> i always had this uneasy relationship with the film and the music Aww. and so it's a little surreal to have you here today to Aww. talk about this <laughs> not that this is a therapy session or anything <laughs> i don't expect you to fix anything but if you have any insight, go ahead. I got some issues. Well, we all had fun. Okay. And, uh, it wasn't real. <laughs> there is no such thing as the boogeyman. Thank you. You can, you can go now. Thank you. We're done. Okay. Um, you guys shot a lot around South Pasadena, and a lot of those locations are still there today, right? Right. And that right. house has moved down the, the street, hedge. I believe. Yes. The hedge is still there. The guy has a lot of pride in his hedge. Oh, I bet he does. Yeah, yes. I bet he gets a lot of hedge gawkers. Yes, and I think he likes it. Really? Yeah. Some people in other houses, like on Orange Grove, they are. I think they redid the they redid the facing of it, so it doesn't look the same because yeah. they didn't want the look he lose. But Sean Clark kind of, you know, he revisited with me and my daughter and her friend and Hallowed Grounds. It's one of the extra special. Oh, that's features right. Yes, I've seen that. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I bought the whole yeah. Blu-ray box set right. last year. I wouldn't watch the films alone, but I did watch them. It's important <laughs> to know. Time to grow up. No. <laughs> even the music is scary without even. You know, you're having, telling me. I yeah. know. It's, so, yeah, and that's what really made it was 50 percent of the effect of the movie. It really but the is. fact that there's no blood, there's no knife coming out with blood, there's no splattering of blood, there's no arms coming off, there's no really even my scene. How clean was that? Come on, I was like gurgling and a telephone cord, yeah. cord that probably most kids are like, "What is that?" Yeah, people like, associate <laughs> so much gore with that film, but it's not really there. In no, fact, even when you briefly just, see Michael Myers' face, people think he's deformed, right. but he's not. He no. just has a little scar from the knife. Yeah, and it's Tony Moran who they chose him because he was good looking. Uh -huh. So they wanted the mask to come off and for there to be an actually good looking guy there. And the little boy was a cute little boy. You yeah. didn't think he would have done something like that. Donald Pleasance was the scariest thing in the movie, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what was he like? He was very quiet. I think he wanted to maintain being in character the whole time, but he also really? probably didn't feel that he had too much in common with three giggling girls who yeah. we were in our 20s and sitting around at lunch laughing and talking about guys and things. So he was just eating his sandwich always and we'd look at him, he'd give us like this eye and, you know, we found out much later that he had a daughter. He could have joined in and, you know, but we felt that there's some actors that do the method and they have to stay in character. So we thought, well, maybe he's one of those, you know, because oh. he did, he was quiet. That's so funny to me that Dr. Loomis was done on the method style of acting. 
love that. I'm guessing. Yeah. I don't know, but he did say he wouldn't take the raincoat off. But really? <laughs> <laughs> apparently, his daughter was the reason he was in that film in the first place. Right, she was a fan yeah. of Carpenter, right? Right, right. Yeah. It was yeah, his music and well, the, the previous movie, I guess. Yeah, and so what was the situation with Carpenter and Deborah Hill that was a real collaborative effort between the two and yeah they both wrote it yeah and then they were both producers Hmm. and then she and then he was a director so um they were constantly whispering to each other it was a really collaborative effort um uh, uh, she did everything, you know, sweeping up the leaves. Uh, she was always by his side. It was a very loving relationship. I was very disappointed and sad at the cast and crew screening when they were no longer together. It was so that quick. It huh? was that quick. And it was shocking because they, you know, we had the rap party at their house and I had no idea. I thought, oh my gosh, this power couple, they're going to be great. You know, this is their, we're in one of their first movies and there'll be more movies to come, but you know. Uh, and and they were they were both very gentle um, people. No screaming, no yelling. Everything was always soft spoken. Everything was of great concern. Like I said, John Carpenter, you're comfortable, whatever you're comfortable. You know, I don't want you to feel out of place. But add and then always just, you know, really made you feel like whatever you added in terms of uh, dialogue was just welcomed and applauded. And you're constantly being reaffirmed that you're doing a great job, which is so amazing. Yeah, you know? it seems kind of rare. Too. Yeah, yeah, and Carrie, Ryan De Palma hardly talked to us, you know. Okay, that's interesting. So just in contrast for what my previous experience was and then to work with these people that were like your family and saying, you know, everything you're doing is great and whatever more you want to do, it's up to you because this is a collaborative effort among all of us. So Uh it's so nice. And is it true that you guys had to wear some of your own clothes for this film or? Oh yeah. We wore only our own clothes. Really? Yeah. I don't think they gave me anything. You still got that jacket? Cause I'd probably wear that. That's a nice jacket. (laughs) That green jacket? Well, the, the the like the sports jacket you have in the beginning. I have, yeah. yeah. It was a green. I don't have that, and I don't have no. And those heels you have, yeah. That are, that I bought. Uh, yeah, definitely, they were my jeans, and I bought those shoes. They were not my shoes, but I I, I wanted to, you know. Have those, those are precarious when you have to walk on yes. the grass at some point. You yeah. Can see that it's yeah, see. a journey for you. <laughs> and I tripped over the dolly track. I know. You did? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and when Bob and I first come in and then we're on the couch and then we're going to go over, go upstairs, I trip. But again, we had, we were on a limited time schedule. So oh. John, the, nobody will notice it. But of course, the people that notice the palm trees notice the trip over the dolly track. <laughs> so what was the cast and crew screening like when your first impressions, when you saw it? Um, thought. Actually, this is really cute. <laughs> That's what I thought. But I didn't think, wow, this is going to be amazing. And I was a little stunned, of course, with my nude scene because I was like, okay, well, maybe my, you know, again, my parents just, you know, I was going to prepare them for that. But I they, did, I they got to it before you even prepared them? Yes, yes. They went to a screening in Phoenix and um, I guess somebody had had a heart attack or something. And they had gone with... L- wait, literally? Yeah, literally. At the, because yeah. of the fear of the movie? Yeah, oh, so. you're kidding. Oh, my God. But in any event, they had gone with a couple of friends of theirs. And the only thing they said was, you could have told us and we would have gone alone. <laughs> we wouldn't have brought Jeanette and Bob or whatever their names were. <laughs> yeah, uh, so. so you often played these young teenagers, uh, ch- cheerleader in Halloween, that sort of thing. But you came ready with so much culture because you moved around and lived in how many different countries when you were well, first growing up? Uh, yeah, I always like to say four continents. So. Four continents? <laughs> I was born in Germany. My dad was Dutch from Holland and 
He um, was in a work camp during World War II, captured by, you know, the uh, Nazis. Wow. He was in the Dutch underground. My mother had been married. Uh, her husband went off to war um, after seven-day honeymoon, and he got killed three years later on the last, pretty much the last day of the war by friendly fire. Oh, uh, they were no. clearing out Nazis in Germany. And anyway, she went over there to see where he was buried in the Lorraine Cemetery in France, and uh, she was at a the same army base that my father was where they brought all these uh, people to be real rehabilitated and, you know, given jobs and whatever. And she'd gone over there actually to, to work to, uh, to support the war effort in terms of rebuilding Germany. They hired a lot of secretaries and people and uh, met my dad and it was just, you know, love at first sight. And they went to her first husband's grave site and he asked permission to marry. <laughs> it's really? very romantic. It's, but yes, what a wonderful very, thing to come from a tragedy. Romantic. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, life goes on. She was young. Anyway, so they both got jobs there with what's now AIG. It was AIU. It was an American insurance company that yeah. insured uh, American companies, but primarily first off uh, servicemen overseas. But then as they were building their company, my dad spoke several languages, being from Holland, so they wanted to open branch offices. So we moved to Morocco, to Casablanca. He opened an office there. Then we moved to Maracaibo, Venezuela. In, in Casablanca, I spoke, I learned French. And in Maracaibo, I learned Spanish. And he opened an office there. And then he moved us. Uh, I spent one year in Oakland, New Jersey, actually, because he was working in New York City. That's where you got all your culture. And, uh, <laughs> well, it was an interesting year because it was, you know, uh, nobody could – understand that I wasn't from Venezuela. I was like, I just came from Venezuela. I lived there. I'm not Venezuelan, but okay. <laughs> God, there's so many ways I want to go with this with, with your studying language. I know you learned a lot of different languages from your travels when you well, were younger. Oh yeah, French and Spanish. And then my major was Russian. And I felt that there was going to be a future for knowing Russian. And I was interested in any kind of job at the UN, not particularly an interpreter, but doing something. And I wanted to be fluent in a third language, you know, so. Isn't there a story about you you winning back your role in Private Benjamin because you spoke French initially? Like you were, you were. No, that's a very convoluted story. There is the wig involved, though. I did win yeah, back okay, my role. Sorry, yeah, yeah. It, I tried to get the role in Breaking Away because I used French the same yeah. wig that I used. Well, actually, I bought that wig to get the role in Breaking Away of the French girl, Peter Yates. They were filming on the corner and there was this, just this little uh tag of a a part in there and i mean they were going to throw me in there anyway because i was married to dennis quaid at the time and i was on location with them and and it was really fun in bloomington indiana but so they still hadn't cast this part so i, I bought this black wig and i'm standing there and i'm saying i'm a student here and uh, i i understand you're, you're looking to uh cast a, a girl uh, that speaks french and all of a sudden the dp stands up and go peter look at her eyes they look just like pjs <laughs> And I'm like, darn it, what are you doing? And he goes, P PJ, is that you? And I went, yes, but I want the part of the French girl. Oh, darling, it's been cast. It's already been cast, but you were marvelous. It's <laughs> like, okay. Anyway, so that wig I used later on when I auditioned for uh, Private Benjamin, and I had gotten the role, and then Goldie Hawn decided that she wanted to fire the director and get another director. And so my agent called and said, oh, you lost the part because now there's a new director. I said, well, let me audition again. Are you kidding? No, no, they don't, they're throwing out all the cast. So I, I found out the day that they were auditioning for my part. I went there. I put the wig on because the, the 
point was you just busted to in. just look different and also that they didn't want any blondes. And Goldie because decided, Goldie Hawn was a... Goldie was the producer. Oh, and dear. She wanted to be the only blonde, and so she had thought about it. No, PJ's got blonde hair, and so she's out. So I went in, I busted in, I read for him, and it was, I mean, it was a pretty forceful entry, <laughs> I have to say. And he said, all right, you got the part, okay. I said, I'm not, I didn't get the part, I want to keep the part. <laughs> so let me get so. this straight. A wig, the word totally, these are things <laughs> that have gotten you roles. I think. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit well, about it. you have to make a difference and you have to do something just a little, you know, maybe not pushy but um, outstanding maybe to just – well, because you know. wasn't there also a red ball cap that De Palma really responded yes, to for Carrie? Exactly. Yeah. All my props are coming Your in handy here. My, and yes. delivery and vernacular. That was my first audition, and I did. I was. I had moved uh, from New York to LA. I'd only been out here two weeks, and my, I only had a modeling agency. And they said, "Ah, oh, there's this mass audition. Uh, George Lucas and Brian De Palma. They're both casting. Uh, they're just going to look at people." So yeah, wait. We should get this straight. Yeah. So they. George Lucas and Brian De Palma were sharing the same casting session for Star Wars and Carrie, right? Yes, and the so, initial. The it would initial. be like the initial auditions for The Voice. You know, every yeah. teenager in town, every young person come to this. And so we waited like three hours in the hallway. And then you walk into this office and there's one desk, two chairs, George Lucas, Brian De Palma. Brian looks at George. He says, I'll put her on my list. George goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> I turn to go. I have my red baseball hat on. I'm wearing overalls because I didn't want to look pretty. I want to look unusual again a little bit of thing don't go trying to be the prettiest girl have a little character you know so i had the red baseball hat because i heard there was a lot of sun out here but you know make sure you don't burn and as i turned to go he said for the next audition wear the hat i said my red baseball hat he said wear the hat so i did and subsequent three auditions i wore that every time i left he said bring the hat when i got the call that i had the part he said don't forget the hat and Lucky hat. Do you still have that hat? I don't have the hat. It was uh, uh, many, uh, a couple of fans have made me a couple of hats, including the pins. They Uh had like rainbow pins and rainbow patch and a, and a cloud patch. It was a really cool hat, but it was made of felt, and I washed it. And oh, it yeah. Felt isn't going to last. But who knew back then? I mean, that was a long time ago that these things would become coveted and that there would be an eBay or there would be a Facebook or any right, of these things. Right. Nobody knew. You know? <laughs> How was De Palma as a director? He seems very serious. Is that the case? Um, he was very serious, but I think the serious part of him was uh, because like a painter, he was painting a canvas and it was his canvas and he wanted it to come out the way he wanted it. So um, there wasn't much chance for ad-libbing, even though um, it wasn't an ad-lib, verbal ad-lib, but I was really only put on initially for the first week and just for the volleyball game. And because of my red hat and because of the pins, <laughs> when Sissy's basic, when Carrie loses the point, and my only line in the movie up to that point was, thanks a lot, Carrie. I took my hat off and I whacked her on the head and one of the pins caught in her hair and I ripped it out of her hair. And she was like, and Brian just thought that was the best. And he said, you're on for the rest of the shoot. We're going to put you next to Nancy Allen. You're going to be her best friend. Oh, that's great. So it was awesome, you know. I imagine you showing up to auditions with a briefcase of accessories (laughs) going, hmm, let's see. uh, Nose, mustache. (laughs) I'll take the cigar and uh, here we go. Uh, (laughs) uh, So you're working with Travolta, Sissy Spacek. 
And then you later worked with Travolta because of this on The Boy in the in Plastic, plastic Row. Yeah, I remember yeah, this yeah. on TV. Really? This was a big event it was in a my good, family. Yeah, it was a good movie. Um, well, just to expand a little bit on Brian De Palma. Please. We had the next subsequent three auditions were at his apartment on Fountain Avenue. And I was I remember just being amazed, and maybe as everybody does this, I don't know, but in his dining room, the entire all the walls were covered with storyboards of every scene of Carrie. And I wow. thought, wow, he's mapped out the, does everybody do this? He's mapped out the entire movie, pretty much. I mean, not, you know, the, the prom scene took a long time, but I mean it was really his creation. And I think, you know, Stephen King initially probably had a problem with it, and, and certainly the writer was kicked off the set. The script writer was script off kicked off the set the first day. I do remember that. Wow. It was a big tussle and get out and screaming and yelling. And and then it was it was really Brian's movie. But, uh, you know, like I said, he didn't come to the actors and talk to them and, you know, say, hey, your character in this. Maybe he did with Sissy and maybe with Piper. I'm not sure. We were sort of, you know, uh, subliminal characters. But in any event. Um, so, yeah. So all of us became very good friends because like Halloween, we were always there every day. And again, even though the budget was... I think it was, I forget, $8 million, $1 million. I forget what the million for, was. For, for Carrie. Oh, I forget. Sure. But it was a considered low budget. And we were all getting favorite nations, which was $600 a week at that time. But so we were asked to come every day, especially with the prom scene, because, you know, you never knew when you'd see yeah. an angle and we'd be there. But, um, and so we all became very good friends. And, and John just thought I was hilarious <laughs> in my part. And so he said, Oh, I'm going to be doing this movie and I want you to be. And I was sure it was just a small part, but it was really nice. You know, yeah. it was nice that he could do that. There was a couple other people in Carrie that he brought along too. And, and Amy Irving really wanted to play the part of Carrie, but right. yeah. And was she, she ended up dating Spielberg during yes. this film? Well, Spielberg came down and asked all of us out and we all said <laughs> just no. one after the other yes really i think brian said come on down there's some cute girls here <laughs> but she's the only one that went out with him yeah so, so then nancy allen ended up marrying him marrying brian de, de palma de palma yeah yeah, not, yeah. yeah. and then amy no, irving amy and spielberg, and spielberg. Yes. Yes, yes so yes. what was your reaction at the time spielberg had probably just done jaws right that's it or had he what year was carrie that was uh, 76. Yeah, so Jaws was 75, I think, right? So I yeah. wonder if it was even out at the time yet. Uh, I don't know, but not, not my type. Not your type, <laughs> no. All right. I don't second. know. <laughs> I want to go through some of these amazing roles that you've played, and I'm just going to say a title, and if you have anything you want to say about it or anything interesting, um, just fire away. Um First of all, Stripes with Bill Murray. Well, uh, they had already started shooting in Fort Knox. I had just finished a movie in Marshall, Texas called Soggy Bottom USA. It's oh, that's a, on my list here. I love that movie. Yeah. Anyway, and so I had flown from Texas up to Fort Knox to Louisville, Kentucky and auditioned. And it was just um, uh, Ivan Reitman and uh, Harold Ramis. I didn't meet Bill. And uh, Ivan and uh, Harold and I did a little funny video together. And he's the he was the nicest sweetest man, funniest, most intelligent guy like that it. I've ever worked with. And 
and you know he in the industry he was wonderful and it just was it was great and they had already cast Sean Young they already had everybody else they just didn't have Stella so they were desperate and I think you know because we hit it off and, and I looked like I was fun and I already had some experience by the time I landed they had cast me and the next day I flew out again and then I was there and that was a, a very very uh, interesting and wonderful shoot just because it was you know a uh, a studio picture and again Ivan Reitman knew exactly what he wanted and to him it was all about the look and the scenes and the and then the hard part for him was getting Bill Murray to get out of the you know the dressing room and to get on set and Difficult, so that was huh? my job really <laughs> how did you go because about that it wasn't it wasn't fun and it wasn't easy but <laughs> the payoff was that when you're together working with him like the kitchen scene you just never know what was going to happen. That was 3 o'clock in the morning, and we were supposed to be outside watching fireworks, but it was raining, and we were in Beverly Hills. This, we came back to do a couple of pickup shots, and that was one of them. It was just to go for the first kiss and to show that they liked each other. And we were just standing around, and Bill goes and opens the refrigerator door, and he pulls out a carrot. And I just said, what are you going to do with that? And Ivan could see, okay, Bill's turned on. Let's get the cameras rolling. And that that scene was shot in literally 20 minutes. Uh-huh. We did a master and we did a coverage and that was it. And that was done. And to me, it was just a delightful scene. And that's the gift you get from Bill Murray, who can be cantankerous and moody and mean and weird all the other times. But, you know, when you need him most to do something really special that's magical on screen, he comes through. All right. Rock and roll high school with the Ramones. Yeah. I, if you wouldn't mind, I would love Again, it's another. It's about the accessory, this red jacket that you bought at Fred Siegel, right? <laughs> and there's a Rod Stewart connection to this. Am I right? Yeah, so that's not why I got that part. No, I, I didn't know. have the jacket then. But it is hilarious because, again, a very low-budget movie. Uh, they had $100 for their wardrobe budget, and I probably spent my whole salary, which was about $2,500 <laughs> on my wardrobe. But in any event, um, uh, went to um, what's it called? Fred Siegel, and this is – you know, when I was scouting around and I hadn't gone to Figarucci yet in Beverly Hills because I had very specific ideas for this character. It was going to really pop out and had to, you know, have the energy of the way the Ramones played. I wanted my 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 speaking energy and my basic energy on screen to be like Johnny's, you know, guitar playing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so this jacket, I had put it on hold. And when I came back to get it, because I was like, yes, now I got the part. I'm going to get it, blah, blah, blah. I have some money left over. I can get this jacket red jacket with the musical notes and um so I, they get it i put it on and rod stewart's standing there and he looks at it, he goes oh i like that jacket and i go oh okay but i'm buying it and he goes no no i want the jacket and i go no you can't have the jacket you don't understand i'm playing this part and yeah 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 yeah. i want the jacket uh can i have the jacket you have any more no that's the only one well, i want the jacket and i go no i said i promise after i finished playing you. this part in this movie i've put it on hold I already paid for part of it it's you know i will i will you can have it after I do the movie. <laughs> so he kind of, he actually literally tried to pull what? it out of my hands. I took it off to, you know, so the guy could scan or whatever and give me, you know, I could pay him and he's trying to pull it out of my hands. So it's a very funny moment. He, he was either probably playing with me or not, but I don't know. He didn't get the jacket. I did. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Rod, if you're listening and I know you aren't. <laughs> 
First of all, you bloody well can have the jacket, yeah. but you know what? It's in a Portland. At actually, this shirt, Movie Madness. My friend Mike Clark has a video rental store in Portland. They've, he's got every title under the sun. He's a really good friend now. I didn't know him before. I did a couple of events, a screening of Rock and Roll High School. In any event, I loaned him the jacket and the pants, and he put it on a mannequin. He's got my script. He's got an album. And uh, people love going in there and seeing the outfit from, you know, Rock and Roll High School. He's got a lot of other um, uh, costumes from various movies, and he's uh, very proud to have that one. <laughs> well, guys, get ready for a Rod Stewart sighting up in Portland, Oregon. He's coming. A break in at Mike Clark's Movie Madness <laughs> video store. Hmm. <laughs> and the silhouette is a man with just the spiky tufted hair that, with really tight cheetah print pants. Somehow left there at the scene. And a 26-year-old blonde girl. (laughs) (laughs) You also worked with Harrison Ford in a TV movie called The Possessed, right? Yeah, I've dug deep. Oh, you have? Yes. How was that? How deep? What do you know about the dinner? Well, I heard a little something about a game of footsies that he was trying to play with you and you you rebuffed him like a lady. I've done my research, PJ. I've got a crack team of me just doing this stuff. Let me tell you, I wouldn't watch Halloween last night solely because it's You're dark. You're turning out. into TMZ. What's no, going on here? no, this is this is pure journalism. This is pure journalism. I, I watched the movie. Well, yeah, it is. I was there too. So. That's right. Okay, so you're at dinner. Uh, I'm doing? at dinner. Yeah. At well, dinner. my understanding. The, the thing is, I have to get these things confirmed by you because I can't trust the internet. But apparently, he was trying to play footsies with you, and yes. he was a married man at the time. Yeah, me and another girl, Harrison yeah. Ford. The two of you? I think he got her shoes off too, no. but not mine. No. Oh, good. Here's the thing. I love that you don't take off your shoes for Harrison Ford. You don't give up your red jacket to, to Rod Stewart. That's right. You've got class, you've got style, and it's, it's been great to have you here today. Aww. Truly, it is a pleasure of mine to have Aww. you on this show. Well, so have I, really have I relieved it. your fears at all? You don't You don't know that how much you have. You well, really have. Right. Well, maybe one day we can watch it together and I'll hold your hand. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is, we are recording this, right? This is a podcast? We have this? Do you, I don't know. I, I think I would explode because I just don't know if that would be like full. My, my brain wouldn't be able to process it. You know what I mean? So I, I'm right. up for that, but well, that just would be think difficult. that I was, you know, inside I was giggling when the when the phone cord was around my neck. And well, that's next time, watch it without the music, and it won't scare you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, PJ. Thank you. Thank you, PJ Souls. Thank you, Derek Mears, for getting us together. You can find PJ at many different horror conventions and also on Twitter, where she goes by PJ Souls Totally. Hmm. And now on to a segment that I'm very excited about. As mentioned before, my friend Jay Cheel, who is one of the co-hosts of the wonderful Film Junk podcast and a brilliant documentary filmmaker, came out to L.A., and we went to visit some of the locations of Halloween in South Pasadena, very near where I now live, on the street where I get my hair cut. And what I think is going to be a trip down horror memory lane turns out to have a very special surprise guest and also ends up just feeling like an episode of California Gold with Huell Hauser. If you're from the West Coast, you know what I'm talking about. So please enjoy. Oh, I was literally there too. Well, we're coming to you live from Montrose Street in South Pasadena, just north of Oxley. I'm here in the field with Jay Cheel, podcaster, filmmaker, 
John Carpenter expert, would you say that's fair to say? I would say as much as you're a Bond expert. Actually, not that much, actually. I try to be. a lot of credit. I don't know. I think you may know more about Carpenter than I do, James Bond. Let's not set that up. (laughs) (laughs) But we're here, almost here, at the location of the hedge, the famous hedge where Michael Myers peeks behind when the three Halloween girls are walking home from school, but we haven't gone up to the house yet because a child that lives in the house has just come out of the house and we didn't want to bother him. They seem to be loading their vehicle with some sort of, I'm guessing, groceries. Yeah. But you brought up a good question, Jay. At what point do you tell the child that's living at the Michael Myers Hedge House that he's living at the Michael Myers Hedge House? You know, I don't know. I, I, I remember when I was a child... And my parents told me that there was a ghost in our house doing the dishes for us, and it haunted me for a long time. Why did so, your parents tell you that? I think they they used to fuck with me a lot. <laughs> oh, my God. Even showing me some of the films that they showed me at the age that they showed me them was probably just to fuck with me. So. Really? All right. Well, the, the woman and her child have left in their car, so we are now approaching. This is the hedge, the famous hedge. So there's two hedges here. I guess first we should assume that people trust we're actually here. We'll take a picture for proof. Okay. Yeah. This is a podcast, and we could just be doing this at home and visiting the location through the film. But But here's what's more interesting is now that there's someone setting up a little camera, and he looks like he's wearing the Michael Myers coveralls. So this is about to get real interactive, I think. (laughs) Okay. So this is the hedge. Yeah. And were they filming this way? Yeah. I assume? So they're facing north. Michael Myers is looking south. And this little cement curb here. Right. Is, uh, it's a beautiful neighborhood. It is. And I rewatched the film on the plane and for the first time noticed palm trees. Oh, yeah. They talk about how and, there are uh, palm trees. There's that wide shot where uh, Jackie Lee Curtis and <laughs> Tommy are walking across the street. And you can see palm trees in the background. Holy shit. Oh, here we go. There's literally a Michael Myers on the street right now. Oh, my God. Let's go talk to these guys. Guys, do you mind talking to us very briefly? Sure. You guys doing a podcast? Yeah, we are. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. What's, uh, what's going on with here? What's, you, what's your names? Filming a uh, video for YouTube, the filming locations of Halloween. Oh, fantastic. Uh, we have special guests. Oh, this is harrowing. So I, I have a special relationship with Michael Myers. And How you doing, Michael? Not a word. <laughs> wow. I, the hair is interesting to me. It's pretty it's well coiffed, yeah. That Trump-esque cotton candy hair. <laughs> it looks good, though. This is uh, not Matt, ideal for me right are now. Are you having a moment? I am, yeah. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable. Michael, uh, dispel some myths. You're a nice fellow, right? Not a word. Not a word. <laughs> this couldn't have worked out better, though, because we just came to see the hedge, and we got a Michael Myers in the bargain. He's just still looking at me, so uh, I, I, I do. I, well, I saw you earlier without your mask, and you're a fine-looking fella. And I swear I saw you talking, but uh, why go stand behind the hedge. You're, you're freaking us out. Oh, there he goes. He's very obedient. Look at wow. <laughs> oh, my God. So Michael Myers is going behind the hedge, doing the iconic half-stance Waiting for Jackie Lee Curtis. Yeah. There he is. One more time, Michael, if you don't mind. Be a doll. Hey, is it okay if I get in there for a picture? Yeah, definitely, man. Okay. Here, I'll double fist the mics. Can you also single fist the photo? Sure. All right, thanks. Matt is running in and getting a picture with his nightmare. I assure you visually that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. 
what what was that picture? Wedding ring. Okay. <laughs> well, having had PJ Souls in for the interview and getting the catharsis of talking to her and realizing she's not dead, and then spending a nice late morning with Michael Myers, who's an honest fellow, it looks like he's got a wedding ring, he's done his hair. <laughs> this has been more than a success for me. What do you think, Jay? I would think so. Being someone who who responded to the film in the way you did, do you feel anything when you come here? Like... I know when I visit some of these locations, I feel, I don't know, like a intense nostalgia in a good way. Yeah. Do you feel it in a, uh, uh, I, I guess, a, a scary way, a bad way? You know, we came here, what, like a year or two ago? Yeah. And th- then I felt it. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> you okay? Yeah. He just took his mask off. What's your name? Uh, it's Count Stankus. Count Stankus. How is that your Christian name? No. Okay, Count Stankus. All right. And what's, so what's the uh, program you guys are doing here? I do a video series on the channel Adam the Woo. Oh. And I do a bunch of horror filming locations and other uh, videos all over, all over the U.S. pretty much. Wow, I imagine this is the time of year when probably every day someone's stopping by to do a little segment here. Yeah, I went the other day. I went to the Myers house. And the gentleman, that I guess, that is in there that owns it is not a happy camper when it comes to... Do not open the door and walk in there without <laughs> some sort of retaliation by the property owner. So There it is. Mm. Okay, we're going to head back over to the hedge and finish up our segment. Nice to meet you Thanks, guys. guys. Uh, do you ever see the show Mama's Family? Of course. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> okay, we're shifting <laughs> gears here. <laughs> well, we've been, we've been told that we're not only by the Halloween Michael Myers hedge, but we're also standing in front of the Mama's Family house. We'll post a photo of that, which is frightening in its own right. Uh, boy, there it is. All right, we'll take a photo of that. And there's a real cluttered office up there mm-hmm. on the top floor. But it is a beautiful house. It is interesting that, you know, we're, we're told this is the house from Mama's family and suddenly we're taking pictures of it without any sort of confirmation. I know. Yeah. But, I love my journalism. <laughs> check my sources. And... It is interesting thinking, you know, like the people who moved into this house, if they know what they're getting into when they buy the house, like, is this something that the realtor would warn them about? Yeah, PJ Souls told me that the person, the, the guy that lives here apparently loves it, as yeah. opposed to the Michael Myers house, which is a business, and they don't love it. But I think that this person cultivates it, although I have to say it looks like the hedge is actually on the property. The address listed online is 1019, but I feel like the hedge belongs to 1025. Right. It's within their little cement border. Talk, I mean, I know neighbors have disputes over trees and hedges all the time, but you... You have to keep the Michael Myers hedge up. I'm so glad that they've maintained it. For sure. Yeah. It does give me a bit of a chill to come back here and think, like, this is the hedge where he peeked out. Yeah. And, oh, this whole neighborhood. And and yet I'm so drawn to it, too. Like, I live five minutes from here now, probably half because that movie sort of shaped somehow drew me to this type of neighborhood i don't know what to do say do you think i think it does like have a small part your fears? of it because i feel yeah like i oh, here we go. it, it is my people. oh yeah it's my first consciousness of of a film neighborhood it's the same thing with like how the movie frightened me to death but also i'm still attracted to 70s looking women from that movie right. because of that you know it informed way too much i mean I, I let that movie inform way too much yeah it's like all i do all my murdering in the michael myers style <laughs> oh look here's a monarch butterfly too oh, that's beautiful this is a magical place <laughs> you know you can kind of sense the uh haddonfield feel to the place yeah. but it's very clearly Los Angeles. Yeah, they really... Not that I know anything. No, you're right. That's right. He's from St. Catharines, Canada, right? Yeah. So they threw a bunch of 
dead leaves around or fake leaves even in every scene and there really aren't it's the middle of fall it's the height of fall it's what a few days before halloween and there are some dead leaves around i i just figured i didn't even know that the leaves do the leaves change here is that a dumb question no they do the so pasadena part of the reason i love pasadena is it has a lot of trees that do turn to autumn leaves right but yeah when you really get into la it's a lot of palm trees and year-round trees but that that sort of tree will turn at some point though it should have by now yeah these like maple or liquid amber trees it kind of adds to it too because when they're walking through the neighborhood you're seeing trees that look somewhat strange yeah at least there's something unusual about them yeah but it works well all right this may be a wrap on the hedge location what do you think any final thoughts on the hedge anything else you need to fill us in on I feel like it's interesting, just one observation, mm-hmm. that the Michael Myers house has this tiny little pumpkin on the porch, <laughs> and the house right across the street is completely decked out. Yeah. So I wonder if the people living across the street enjoy this more than the people who actually live here. You, you may be right, yeah. Maybe they moved into the neighborhood trying to get close to it, but couldn't To get across the from the, the Myers house. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Come on in. Are you guys here to see the Michael Myers hedge? What's your name? Uh, John. John, and who's this? Michelle, and I'm not going by no hedge when Michael Myers is walking around the neighborhood. You must be crazy. <laughs> That's a... What, did you expect to see an actual Michael Myers here today? No, not at all. Where are you guys from? Uh, Indiana slash Chicago, northwest Indiana. Oh, close to Haddonfield, Illinois. So are you in town just on vacation, or are you here to see some Michael Myers locations? Uh, vacation, but, you know, we'll do a little bit of this, too. That's a good double team right there. That's two <laughs> birds, one stone. Locations whenever we go to Los Angeles. And this was one we did not get our picture by before. So he's like, let's go. I said, Michael Myers is walking around. You must be nuts. I'm not getting out of the car. Okay, well, guys, get in there. Enjoy. Have a good day. Good job. Keep it real. Bye. See ya. Okay, now we're walking up to what is probably the holy grail of Halloween locations. You could go see the babysitter houses in Hollywood or the sanitarium in Altadena. But this is where you come home as Michael Myers. This is the Michael Myers house where he kills his sister, Judith, right? Is that right? Judith Judith Myers, Myers, yeah. And uh, it's right in front of the Metro line, which is (laughs) passing us right now just to get some NPR (laughs) ambiance. Now, Jay, tell us what's the history of this house. They moved it at some point, right, and fixed it up? They did move it. Is, Is it a dentist office now? Oh, it's a design... Grissom Moore Design Incorporated. There, they get a free plug. There's a few little, uh, few little businesses here within this house. It looks like it's actually quite nice. I know Michael Myers was not a fan, but I think it looks good. Yeah, I, I just don't understand why, unless you're moving the house specifically because it's the Michael Myers house and it has some history behind it. Why you would move a house like this a block? and set it up? That's a great question. So they put in a, uh, looks like an apartment or condominium development about a half a block down where the house used to be. And then they moved it down, fixed it up. And I wonder if it was just because it was a historic home or something. It looks, it's kind of a simple Victorian two-story house that's probably a hundred years old or so. Right. But there's actually, oh, there's, I I just, it's scarier (laughs) thinking of, (laughs) rather than thinking of this as the Michael Myers house, it's scarier thinking of the trouble you'll get into 
if the mean man who owns it yells at you for going on the it porch. Does, it has exactly the same effect as when you're a kid going up to the scary house in the neighborhood. Yeah. As an adult, I am I am like compelled to walk up on that porch, but I yeah. know there's a danger. I do want to read that little sign in the doorway that I'm sure says something about don't read this sign. <laughs> let's walk up there. Let's peek up there. Okay. We're getting closer. Where is the official line? Yeah. It says, attention all movie fans. You may take pictures from the parking lot, but we ask that you stay off the porch and respect the privacy of all occupants. Thank you. I will note that the type on that sign is so small, you literally have to be on the porch yes. to read it. <laughs> That's terrifying. Yeah. Well, I can respect that. I'm not going to bust in on them. This isn't jackass. I remember growing up at the end of my parents' street, there was a, an old house similar looking to this, and it was completely run down. And it was on a little lot that was completely overgrown. And we would go in there and play war and, you know, have fun. And there were clotheslines with plastic buckets hanging on the clotheslines. And my, I remember my parents t- telling me they were full of piss and shit. <laughs> what is with your parents, man? That stuck with me forever. Yeah. But, uh, I'm concerned about your upbringing. <laughs> we, we played war in there. And I... I stood on a giant pile of twigs, and a giant swarm of bees flew out of the twigs. And I was wearing a full tracksuit. I believe it was a matching volleyball tracksuit with volleyball down the leg. And because of the material, all of the bees stuck to my body. And I ran screaming down the street. Man, and uh, Candyman. My dad, Pat, uh, it was like Candyman. This is a horror genre mashup. Yeah. Uh, there is a little plaque on here, too. Let's see this. It says, South Pasadena Cultural Landmark, Century House. <clears throat> now, I, I guess it's naive of me to assume it's a cultural landmark because of the movie Halloween. I was wondering that myself, but I think the fact that it's called a Century House means it's 100 years old, and it says number 34, so it's probably number 34 in a series of at least... 100-year-old houses, right? That's my deduction. Now, does the man who owns this collect century-old houses? Oh, I, 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 I kind of like the idea of them being numbered. Yeah, like there's, I know. It should have 34 of yeah. 50 or... Yeah, like trading cards. Gotta catch them all. Gotta own them all. Yeah. Gotta live in them all. But it's weird. I, I am a big John Carpenter fan, and Halloween, I think, is arguably his most popular and and maybe considered his masterpiece Mm -hmm. but it's not the one that really speaks to me the most it's not the one i watched as much as others when i was a kid and it's the one that i think some of these houses if i walk past them i wouldn't recognize them at all yeah i don't think i would have you know the we're going to the prince of darkness church that's right tomorrow night yes now talk about that very briefly we're going to see we're going to watch Prince of Darkness inside the church that the film is set in, yeah. which is like a dream. That's cream dream supreme. That's a cream dream me. supreme folding in on itself. Yes, that's amazing. That'd be like watching Star Wars on the Death Star. Right. Yeah. It's in uh, the trash compactor. Yeah. From it, the belly of the Dianoka. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I'm going to. Uh, it's. It's. There's a possibility I might cry. <laughs> I will be honest, because I, I am so connected to that film for one reason or another. My parents, I remember my, my parents would invite my cousins over and force them to watch Prince of Darkness, and it just scared the shit out of them. And Your I, parents would force them? Yeah. And What is going on here? Well, I, I don't know. I'm just starting to realize a trend here, but 
I really responded to that film. And because it's all in one location, the location is a character in the film. And it's just such a weird, creepy-looking church. So It's now dawning on me that your trip out here is the convergence of our two, like, childhood John Carpenter... It is. Like, origin stories, basically. Because yeah. Carpenter is a big influence in, in your filmmaking, at least it your desire is. to do filmmaking, right? Yeah, yeah. And Halloween is a big influencer on all my psychoses. So it's right. like, these, these are the films that in some ways made us who we are. Just this summer, I visited some locations uh, in Toronto. He shot In the Mouth of Madness up there. Uh-huh. And I have a film coming out called How to Build a Time Machine. And there's a recreation we did of a exterior of a movie theater, which was used in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, which is, uh, was another cream dream supreme. Come if true. You will. Yes. Cream dream supreme come true. So tell us a little bit about the film, your other film, Beauty Day, where people can find you. Uh, people can find me at twitter.com at... Jay Cheel. Yeah. Do you put the ad in the address? These days, Twitter I don't think you have to. Twitter.com slash Jay Cheel. C-H-E-E-L. Uh, yes. I co-host the Film Junk Podcast. Which is which, a favorite of mine. I yeah. never miss it. Which is how we met, That's basically. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I have, so I have a film called Beauty Day, which is about a Canadian, uh, sorry, there's someone in the window and it's really creeping me out. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, it's Judith Myers. <laughs> She's just combing her hair topless. <laughs> Beauty Day is a film about a guy from my hometown in Canada who was like a proto-jackass. Mm-hmm. So he had a cable access show, used to do crazy stunts, ended up falling off a ladder and breaking his neck. And we catch up with him 25 years later as he tries to do a 20th anniversary show. 25 late years later for 20th anniversary? It makes sense in the film. <laughs> and uh, following that, I have a film that's, that will be coming out next year called How to Build a Time Machine, which is about two guys trying to build time machines. I've seen this... Both of them are tremendous, but this new one especially is a wonderful, wonderful film. So keep an eye out for that. I'll let listeners know when it comes out. Jay, I can't thank you enough for walking me through the history of John Carpenter's Halloween on location. I loved it, Matt. Thanks for having me. You, but was it a cream dream supreme? I would. Uh, there are spoiler alerts for the, for me. This is a spoiler alert. <laughs> I have soiled myself with joy. <laughs> thank you. Oh. I was literally there, too. Thank you, everyone, who made it this far for joining me on my journey of personal catharsis. Thank you for Jay Cheel and PJ Souls for joining me. There's one more episode of I Was There, Too coming this year, and then I'll be back early next year. I'm going to take a little recharger. But in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr, at Matt Gorley. You might want to check out that Tumblr page, too, because uh, we've already had some beginning submissions for the Stay Tuned Volume 1 theme songs trickle in, and they'll be posted there, either on Twitter or Tumblr, so check it out. You can also find me on Letterboxd, where you can check out some of the films I'm watching for this podcast. And that's all there is to say. Thanks for listening, and have yourself a scary little christmas Halloween. Halloween. I have been eating Nutter Butters during this recording, so my speech is a little slurred. I should run. It's been a long episode, and yet I don't stop talking. (laughs) How long would you stay with me if I just kept rambling like this? We're not going to find out. Good night.
Attention humans, before you turn your podcast application off, why not listen to the best podcast in the universe? Improv for Humans with Matt Besser. Oh, welcome to Improv for Humans with Matt Besser, that's me! Improv legend Matt Besser and his friends. Take your suggestions. Three of the best improvisers in the world will be improvising off your suggestions given to me at Twitter, newspaper articles, we're going to crap on YouTube. And turn them into long-form improv comedy. But I wasn't referring to the lion when I said lion. I was referring to your tube. What? That's what I call teeth now. Oh, I see. Lions. Oh. Now we're going to knock that crown right out in one... Fast shot. What do you know? Swift, swift shot. Can I be honest with you? What? As your sole defender, I, I'm beginning to feel that your lion hunting activities are crossing into your dental activities in a way that I had not anticipated. Listen to Improv for Humans on iTunes, Evolve.com, Howl, or your favorite podcast app. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.